Welcome back, everybody, to the podcast for Cultural Reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. I hope you're having a culturally reforming day. This is the show for culture makers, and we want to help you think about culture in a way that honors God and in a way that brings every thought captive to King Jesus. We're here in Season 2, Episode 17, and Pastor Tim Bailey is my guest today. Tim talks about his recent book, The Grace of Shame, Seven Ways the Church Has Failed to Love Homosexuals. He talks about the legacy of Alfred Kinsey in breaking taboos and normalizing sexual rebellion. He talks about the role that shame plays in bringing about godly repentance and what it looks like to minister in a way that is gracious and uncompromising. Tim also speaks from his own experience about the need for Christian men to take responsibility for leading their families in obedience to the authority of King Jesus. Pastor Tim Bailey, it's uh, it's a real pleasure to have you on the show. Welcome to it. Thank you, Ryan. Now, uh, you've got a recent book out called The Grace of Shame, Seven Ways the Church Has Failed to Love Homosexuals. And I, I want to give you a chance to talk about the book in some detail, but first, um, what I want to do is introduce you to our listeners who might not be familiar with you. That'd be good. So you've, you've been working, you've been ministering uh, to help people and uh, been working with men in particular, I understand, uh, to help, help them understand and live as the men and women that God designed them to be. And, uh, and you've, been, you've been doing this work uh, as a pastor uh, for decades, and you've been doing it way before the current mainstreaming of gender rebellion, way before we've had every other primetime sitcom uh, presenting, you know, uh, a gay lifestyle as normal. Uh, what, what was it about, or what was it that alerted you to the importance of this aspect of the gospel? Uh, what, uh, what sort of twigged your attention that the church in the West has lost its way on this point? Well, in that book, and also in Daddy Tribe, my book on fatherhood, I think in both places I'm somewhat autobiographical in explaining that when my wife and I got married, Mary Lee and I, back in 76, um, we were both very much at the front edge of the sexual rebellion of our generation. We had grown up in Wheaton, and Wheaton was awash in the sort of androgynous, egalitarian rebellion that was taking so much of the country, Wheaton being a, you know, a college community, right. and very much the, the faculty at Wheaton and the students were as caught up in this as anybody else. And so when we got married, my wife had gone to, uh, to Westmont in Santa Barbara, and she'd started the first women's center there. She had a pierced nose. She'd worked in San Francisco in a piercing store, and I had worked in San Diego for youth specialties publisher of the Wittenberg door got my ear pierced then. So we were uh, going to Madison because Madison was countercultural. We got married. We showed up there in 76, pierced ear, pierced nose, and egalitarian feminists. Mm -hmm. Long hair I had. Um, and very quickly, uh, reality set in. Because in point of fact, I did not want to commit adultery. I did not want to lose my wife, our daughter. I did not want to have the kind of life that characterized all of my cultural heroes in the previous decade. 
I wanted to repent and be a Christian. But I also wanted to be egalitarian, and so did my wife. And so I described how even in matters as little and silly as taking a walk on the sidewalk, you know, I would not slow down for her because she's short and I'm tall, and she wouldn't speed up for me. And so everything was a fight because nothing was, you know, nothing was given because I was a man and she was a woman, you know, uh, there were no separation of responsibilities. And one day we had a brother-in-law who was, a, you know, a bit of a hippie who had an organic dairy goat farm and we'd go up and visit him and his wife. And one day he took me outside. He was non-intrusive, not, you know, he was definitely not the kind of man that told you what he was thinking. But this one day, he took me outside and he put his hand on my shoulder. And he said, Tim, God wants you to leave your home. And it was cataclysmic with me. Um, it blew my mind that this organic dairy goat farmer would say something so direct to me. And it was his sister I was married to. And so I began to look at the issue of authority. Okay. And one of the first things I did, I was working as a custodian of a large church, and so as I was stripping and waxing floors, I'd listen to tapes, and one of the tapes I listened to was a charismatic preacher who preached on the issue of authority in Scripture. Not the authority of Scripture, but the principle of authority woven through Scripture, and I became convinced at that moment that the ordering principle of my life was rebellion against authority. Hmm. And then being acclimated to that as a serious sin, contrary to God and his fatherhood. I became aware of it everywhere. I mean, it just was clear how it permeated all of the different strands of rebellion in our culture. And then it came home to me that this was what was characterizing our marriage, that Mary Lee was a rebel against authority and that I was a rebel against authority because I didn't want to have any. I just wanted to please Mary Lee and, and, and sort of hide, you know, abdicate. Yeah. yeah. And so then I realized that God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, is to be feared and obeyed. And that that is what it means to be a Christian. Not that the fear is a cringing fear, but nevertheless fear that, that, that God is to be feared and obeyed, and that that is the mark of the Christian, that the Christian loves his son, Jesus Christ, because he has, you know, reconciled us to the wrath of his father. And that's why we love him. That's, that's grace. Well, <laughs> you can imagine that coming to that realization, it's impossible to separate the issue of authority and submission from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. because the confession all through the book of Acts is that he is Lord. And that's why it was such a serious thing that the Christians would never refer to the Roman emperor as Lord. They wouldn't say Caesar is Lord because that, they were jealous for the lordship of Jesus Christ, which, of course, is authority. That's right. So I don't know if that helps you, but that's a short description of how I sort of came of age on those issues. No, that's uh, that's very helpful. And um, just uh, just following up on that, uh, I mentioned that uh, you're the pastor at Clearnote Church, uh, and that's in Bloomington, Indiana. And um, that's uh, Bloom Bloomington, Indiana. Like, it's not really the first place that many people think of uh, when we talk about 
defending and upholding and uh, submitting to the authority of God when it comes to his sexual norms. Uh, but uh, you explain in your book that uh, that Bloomington and that Indiana University that's uh, that's located there they they've actually been at the forefront uh, of this movement to uh, to mainstream gay culture. Uh, can you just say a little bit more about that? Sure, Ryan. Um, if you live in in Indiana, you know that there are two main schools in Indiana: one's Purdue and one's IU, mm-hmm. and both of them are Big Ten schools. Um, and Purdue is the engineering school. Bloomington is the arts and sciences, although the business school. But the other, and so Bloomington has always been the the more decadent of the two communities, uh, Lafayette and uh, Bloomington. Mm-hmm. Bloomington also, though, back in the 50s, it had a professor. Uh, and that professor put on the map Bloomington uh, sexually by doing the Kinsey reports. And so we still have a Kinsey Institute here in town right, on the campus. And Alfred Kinsey was a promoter of everything that's wicked sexually. If you read any of the history of his data gathering, it's, it's, it's horrendous. Uh, the things that he did himself that he encouraged his researchers to do, hmm. uh, the people he, he, he interviewed, the, the, the terrible crimes they committed that he just dealt with his, the data of his studies. Um, and so that has a history in this community that is very, very evil, wicked. Um, but then there's a third prong that has to be understood, and that is that here in Bloomington, we have the largest music school in the world. And it's particularly strong in the area of voice and opera. Well, if people know something about music schools, uh, they're hotbeds of sexual perversion and immorality. And no, none of the music students uh, that I've We've had tons and tons of musicians and sopranos, altos, tenors, bass. We've had a countertenor. If you read the book, you know about the countertenor. Yeah, I remember that. Um, yeah. And so the combination of the attitude of arrogance in the Midwest, in the state of Indiana, of the whole Bloomington community, and then the Kinsey Institute, and then uh, the music school, uh, Bloomington consistently ranks in one of the top five uh, sort of gay-friendly communities in the country. Huh, is that and, right? And so from the time I've come here, um, it's just, I mean, the minute I hit the ground in this community as a pastor, I was immediately thrown into counseling very tough situations of homosexuality. And uh, it, it just has defined our ministry here. It still does in our pastoral meeting just now. We were talking about uh, a difficult case. Uh, and, and so, yeah, people don't think of Indiana, <laughs> yes. you know. Yeah. They generally think of the coasts, you know. They think of Fort Lauderdale or, you know, Sausalito or La Jolla or uh, Castro or, you know, places like that in the U.S. Right, yeah. Uh, Miami. But Bloomington, actually, uh, if you're in the Midwest, it's Bloomington you want to come to. 
Yeah, that's that's interesting. And that uh, you you mentioned that uh, that uh, that ministry and that counseling to uh, to the Bloomington community in all of those particular sins and expressions that's defined your ministry uh, since '96, I believe. Is that right? Yeah, that's when we moved. But really, it also defined our my wife's and our work in our church back in 76 in Madison. Mm. We dealt very much with homosexuality in our little reform church there. And it defined our ministry for a year in Boulder, Colorado. So <laughs> homosexuality is really old, you know. It's, it's really sort of boring. Um, I know that sounds crazy to say, but I want people to get a sense of the historic uh, nature of sin in the church, in ancient history, in history. In fact, one of the things that I think is saddest today about men in the church and their teaching and, and preaching on homosexuality is they just show that they have no knowledge of what homosexuality has been historically. You know, they show that they've never read anything about Sparta or Greece, you know, or right. Rome, and have no clue what the Apostle Paul was living in at the time, you know? Mm-hmm. You just see this on the part of all the famous Christian celebrities and what they say about this issue, that they have not done their homework, they haven't read history, and so they've been they've been bamboozled by all the political rhetoric today into believing so many lies. So, Tim, uh, this book that uh, that we've been talking about that I've read, again, it's called The Grace of Shame, and the subtitle is Seven Ways the Church Has Failed to Love Homosexuals. And I just, I, I really love that subtitle. It, it's really, uh, really eye, uh, attention-grabbing. Um, but uh, can can you tell me about how uh, how you understand shame to be an expression of grace? That's such an important issue. Um, let me take you out of the book for a second and tell you personally, what existentially, you know, how did I come to see the grace of shame, okay? Sure, love it. The way I had that happen to me is that when I came to Bloomington, I you know, had grown up in a sophisticated home. Dad was a publisher, author, editor. He, he, he'd come from New York City. Um, you know, we grew up having my dad call us over to his chair and show us cartoons in the New Yorker. Okay. That was our childhood. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so when I came to Bloomington, you know, I was, I hope more proud than I even am now. And I'd say, I hope uh, that I'm declining in my pride. That's why I say I hope more. Um, and so, you know, I had... Having, having been, you know, a feminist or egalitarian feminist back in, you know, the 70s, I had the attitude that I understood uh, the condescension and the, the homophobia of American evangelicals because, you know, I, I did around all forms of sexual perversion, you know, if you read the book. The, explicitly, you know, the kind of thing that went on in San Diego. Yes. And and so I was, being an editor's son, I was very aware of nuance in language. And so 
one of my first pastoral calls was going up and visiting a man that was dying of AIDS. Okay. And I was aware of the political uh, nature of the disease at the time. Right. Right. And I tried to posture myself as being kinder and gentler and more sensitive than other people. So a lot of people were very afraid of AIDS at the time, deathly afraid of it. It wasn't certain at that time exactly whether there were limitations on how you would get it. Uh, Ryan White had died recently, the hemophiliac here in Indiana. Mm. My brother was a hemophiliac, so I was highly sensitive to this issue of AIDS. And so as the years went on, I would use language and posture myself as a pastor in such a way that I was trying to make it clear that I did not want to shame anybody who had a desire for intimacy sexually with the same sex. Are you with me? Right, yeah. And so all the language that that involves, you know, gay, um, then as the years went by, I began to, um, I began to listen carefully to uneducated people talking about homosexuality, Okay. A man came in our church who was about as hard-nosed a man as you could find, worked his life in construction, ran a company, had a firm handshake, lived out in the boonies. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I began to see him minister to some of, the, some of the, uh, the people in our church who had struggles with homosexuality, okay? Right. And what I noticed about that man is that when he would minister to them, he'd call them He'd say, you know, I think that queer came out at my table last night. So he'd had a guy come out to his house. He'd had him over for dinner. He knew that the man's temptation was homosexuality. Mm -hmm. And he had not talked to the man, but he had him come out of his house for the very reason of encouraging this man. But then when he would talk to me, he'd say, I think that, I think that queer came out at my table last night. I think it came out of, my closet, out of the closet right at my table last night. And then he'd sort of smile. Well, of course... I was, you know, I was revolved by sure, that kind yeah, of language, yeah. you know, and I'm like, dude, you don't say that. Don't think that. What is wrong with you? And there were a couple other times he did similar. Uh, if you remember the story about the countertenor, he was the man that we sent to New York City to bring that man back when he fell into sodomy again. Okay. Okay. okay yep. You, you with me? And I, I kept trying to bore into his psyche. Why was he using derogatory terms to refer to homosexuality? And then it hit me that people that are uneducated see that it's essential to hold on to the shame of sexual perversion. They have not been educated away from the language that communicates that shame, Okay. And they don't feel any tension between loving the sinner and hating the sin and using language that reminds that sinner of the disgusting perversion of the sin that they're tempted to. Okay, are you with me? Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know if you're with me because this is a basic thing to try and make the case for. But I began to see in myself that 
the thing that the educated people in this country were doing was they were destroying any concept of shame connected with homosexuality. Yeah. And that an awful lot of that shame is communicated through language. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that there was a reason why we never, no longer called it sodomy, but instead called it same-sex intimacy, same-sex attraction, gay, uh, queer, that all the words had become mincing words. And there were no hard-edged words used in the church anymore. And that got me thinking and thinking and thinking. And I'm going to tell you, it percolated for about 20 years until I was writing the book. And then as I was writing the book, I realized that it wasn't enough to talk about the importance of the use of the word sodomy, which historically, that word goes back 2,000 years, and it comes out of God's judgment. And yes, they were inhospitable. That was one of their sins. But what is more inhospitable than trying to bugger a man who comes to your town and is camping on the town square overnight? Yeah, you know? yeah that's a bit of the, the and, pinnacle of inhospitality. Yeah, yeah, and pride. Mm. You know, that somebody else exists to satiate your, your homosexual desires, you know? And so um, I thought, yeah, but you got to go below it. And then it exploded in my mind that shame is a gift from God. And then I began to think about the ways that God led me to repentance, sexual repentance, other kinds of repentance. And so often the very beginning of, um, of repentance for me has been being overwhelmed with the shame of a sin that I have committed before a holy God. Mm. Mm-hmm. And that that shame was such a gift from God, and it helped me so much to hate my sin and run from it, you know. And then you think about Christian's burden and his covering his ears as his family calls him to come back, come back, and he says, "No, life, life, life." Yeah. And 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 then you begin to read the Bible and you look for shame in Scripture, and I mean, it's a prominent theme in Scripture. And so I could keep going, but that's, like I said, it's sort of an existential explanation, you know, of how I came to doubt my own, you know, sophistication, urbanity, my own education, my own, you know, nuance, and to see it really as a lack of love for people who are suffering a a sin that is unbelievably degraded. Mm Mm-hmm. No, it's uh, it's in, as you were talking there, uh, just about uh, about shame that leads to repentance in Scripture. I was thinking about uh, Peter's sermon in uh, in Acts two, and how he's uh, he's up there, and again, like this is this is Peter, the the plain spoken fisherman, not Paul, the sophisticated uh, Pharisee, and he's he's saying, you you crucified the Lord Jesus, and the the response the response from the crowd is a repentant one but it's it's one where like they're they're cut they're wounded they're they're pricked and they they're pulling up their hair like what what do we do now how do we how do we get get out of this situation yeah and if you if you if you see that in acts 2 and then you move on to other places again and again that same thing you crucified him, but God has raised him from the dead. Mm. And 
typically when people want to escape the concept of shame being helpful to evangelism, okay, mm -hmm. when they want to escape that, they'll trot out Paul and the Areopagus yeah. in Athens. And it just always makes me laugh because, you know, you picture going down to the university community in London or going over to, to, to Harvard to Harvard Square or to Oxford or Cambridge, the Sorbonne, you go to any of these universities and you stand up in the most sophisticated city the world has ever known, is arguably Athens, mm -hmm. and the center of that city is the Areopagus. And he says that in him we live and move and have our being. Well, that was directly contrary to the pantheon of gods. Yeah of the ancient world, directly contrary. In him, we live and move, and he set the boundaries of the nations. And then he says, in the past, God has overlooked such ignorance. <laughs> mm -hmm. And how people can <laughs> yeah. say, well, he quoted their poets, you know. He was speaking, he was contextualizing. Well, nobody who contextualizes the way Tim Keller contextualizes would ever have trotted out the word. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he has set a time, you know, when he's going to judge the world by this man. Hmm. And so even using the word ignorance in Athens, I think, is an indication that we should trust that shame is a gift from God. And we never want to subvert the full repentance, the full revulsion of the soul when facing a holy God and seeing the sin that stains us. We should never do that. And I think it's so easy for us to think that um, showing ourselves kinder and gentler is the way of getting a hearing for the gospel. We're talking about, you know, the brewskis we like, you know, having a soul patch or, you know, uh, a certain kind of shoe. Mm -hmm. um, and really, throughout history, it's by preaching depravity preaching the fall, preaching sin, that grace pops. You know, you have to have a background for grace to be seen. And the background is that there is absolutely no hope for us, none. Right. Nathan talks about this uh, after going to a Billy Sunday crusade. You know, and Billy Sunday is notoriously laughed at by sophisticated evangelicals. You go to the Billy yeah. Graham Museum in Wheaton you know, they have this parody of Billy Sunday, a little movie that plays on a loop there, hmm. um, him standing on a chair. What Machen says about his preaching is that he absolutely proclaimed the sinfulness of man so that when he got to the cross of Jesus Christ, you saw the glory of God's mercy and grace in the blood of Jesus. And that's the thing that none of us as pastors and preachers today have any faith for. We don't have any faith for preaching sin and shame and, and filth. And we always want to minimize it, thinking that, you know, <laughs> people will sidle up to Jesus quietly, you know, if they see that somebody as urbane as Tim Bailey is standing next to him and prepared to introduce them to him, you know. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, but you can't, uh, you make, you make, uh, just a a broader a really good broader point that uh like if if the gospel is uh, is good news um, and it is by definition like what's uh, what's what's the good news you go well i don't i don't need any good news if i'm fine 
Yeah, I have gotten so that I almost loathe the discussion of grace in the reform world. Hmm. Um, and it's because if there ever was a time for the cost of discipleship by Bonhoeffer and cheap grace, hmm. it's now. We had a worship service where a man who had confessed to a terribly wicked sin, um, after a period of uh, discipline and uh, being under the elders and worked with extremely carefully for months, uh, he went before the congregation and it was required given the circumstances and he confessed his sin and he asked the congregation to forgive him for his sin. And when he did that, he was tears streaming down his face. Uh, the sin was horror, the mm. horror. And what happened was that the congregation got up out of their seats, hundreds of people, and they came to the center aisle and came down. And one by one by one, they hugged him and said, I forgive you. And I was standing over on the side, and if you knew the circumstances, uh, <laughs> um, and I watched them as they came forward. And of course, as one of the pastors, I knew that some of the people that hugged him had been the terrible, terribly suffered as victims of the very, the very sin that he confessed. Mm -hmm. All right. And he didn't know that, but I knew that. And I watched them as they hugged him with tears streaming down their faces and forgave him. And it went on and on and on. It was most of the worship service that Sunday. Wow. And all of a sudden it hit me. This was the most graceful worship service I had ever been a part of. There, there had never been anything like God's, God's undeserved and total mercy and favor on sinners. The witness to that in that room at that time, none of those people could ever forgive him except through the grace of Jesus Christ at work in their hearts. None of them. Right, yes. And then him, and I'm happy to tell you it's now many years later, and that man is in this congregation and is a leader in it. Okay? He hasn't run. He hasn't allowed his shame to have its resolution by fleeing. Okay? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He's living as the Apostle Paul lived in the New Testament, a persecutor of the church. Mm -hmm. Right? And it just continues to be unbelievably graceful. Just in the last couple of weeks, I've commented on it to that man's wife. Just, he never... The, the gift doesn't stop giving. And when I go in the grave, that gift will be so alive to me, and everybody will know it in this church. And so we must not, must not think that making light of the sin of homosexuality and of all the other sins that have always been characteristic of the church, incest, whatever it is, we must not think that making light of it is, is a gospel method you know, a method of evangelism. We must have faith, again, in the Reformed Church for sin. And for its shame. 
one of the things, and uh, and this is somewhat related, just uh, just insofar as it uh, it has to do with with church life, but um, <clears throat> excuse me, um, at uh, at Clear Note, your your church is described as Protestant, Reformed, and Evangelical, and and those are all words that uh, that we can get behind. Um, but uh, you also you also outline that uh, you you hold to the Westminster standards uh, as a confession, uh, but that members, elders, and pastors um, are given freedom of conscience when it comes to the issue of of baptism, like whether it's uh, it's believers' baptism, adult believers' baptism, or a pedo baptism. Um, so I get like without without getting too without getting too esoteric or without uh, taking us too far to seminary. Uh, what, what are the doctrinal issues that, uh, that you believe a church's leadership needs to be in absolute agreement on? And, uh, what are some that might be considered secondary? Well, it's a tough question. Um, I tell people that our church is absolutely boringly normal across five centuries of Protestantism, except on that issue mm-hmm. where we do in the same church have pastors and elders and deacons who believe in credo-baptism, which is uh, baptistic, and believe in pedo-baptism, which is more Reformed Presbyterian. And I'm, you know, my my undergrad major at UW-Madison was history, and specifically the medieval and Reformation history. And so I know uh, that it would it would cause the hair on the back of the neck to stand up with Luther and Calvin and user and all the rest of them. But what I have noticed is that in the 20th century, there has been, uh, uh, at least here stateside, North America maybe even, I'd say, there has been a common cause being made among reform people um, on every level but the local church. They publish together, they hold conferences together, they write books together, they even, you know, the Reformed Baptists even go to Westminster Seminary in California. That's right. You know, that's their that's their seminary. And I believe that if we're going to make common cause everywhere except the local church, there is no reason not to make common cause in the local church. We should be mature enough to understand that, yes, in fact, even though Presbyterians don't like to admit this, you can be covenantal and be Baptist. (laughs) Okay, And I myself am paedo-Baptist. But our church has been at peace over this issue. And, you know, some some years, more of our pastors, college students become painter than cradle. And in fact, I would probably say that significantly more of them have become uh, painter than have become cradle. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But we don't keep track. And we're committed to this because what we've seen is that if you have a church that is united, on the fact that covenant blessings are in the New Testament and not simply the Old, all right? right? That there are promises for our children in the New Testament, in the New Covenant. If you can unite on that and not be apologetic about it, that that's more of a unity than the time of baptism is a disunity, and everybody holds their position firmly. So, yes, I actually do believe that it would be good for reformed churches to allow freedom of conscience on that time of baptism. 
And I don't think that baptism is a secondary issue. Mm-hmm. And I think the reason we can do this is because we're all covenantal. And I know a lot of guys would laugh at that and say, well, you can't be, you know. Right. And I say, well, come check it out, you know. I think that the average credo baptist in our church can give a better biblical defense for paedo-baptism than almost anybody in the South in a PCA church. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a pretty bodacious thing to say. <laughs> now, then the question is, what are we willing to divide over? And what I would say is sexuality, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Abortion, Absolutely. Authority, absolutely. And the reason is, back at the time of the Reformation, the issue of baptism was not simply the issue of baptism. If you read any of the Reformers on baptism, they're they're running as fast as they can to stay ahead of Thomas Munzer and his pitchfork rebellion. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, And so if you understand what I'm saying, it's like it was the issue of authority at that time. It was not simply the sacrament. And so today, the issue of authority is at stake with feminism, with all kinds of different issues in the church. And we're in a battle for there being any authority. You know, you look at websites like Wartburg Watch. Are you familiar with that? No, I'm not. Uh, Witches Brew here in the U.S.? No, I'm not familiar with those. Well, there's a website called that, and and there are all these sites now which have predominantly women mm-hmm. who go around exposing uh, church leaders for this, that, and the other thing. And one of the common denominators they expose leaders for is, and I know people will have a fit for me saying this, but for them being leaders and exercising authority. Now, a lot of what they'll accuse them of doing is not using their authority to p- protect victims, and that tragically, that's often the case. Mm. But mm. there is such a hatred of authority in the church today. And that authority is not simply the fact that in Adam we all died. You know, the, the intrinsic uh, male context for authority that God put by having Adam be our federal head. You with me on that? Yes. But it also extends to the authority of God the Father. And so really, an attack upon the authority of elders in a church to discipline its members, the attack upon the authority of fathers and mothers to discipline their children as they see fit. You know, you look at Scotland's smacking laws. You know, they're trying to pass laws against smacking in Scotland right now. Mm -hmm. Um, You look at the attack upon the authority of the husband in marriage. All of this really is an attack upon the authority of God, the Father Almighty. And this is a Trinitarian issue. And I'm not going to get into the debate over the Trinity, which is being discussed by a lot of people and needs to be worked on very carefully. But I am going to say this, that when it comes to the authority of elders, and fathers, and husbands, and when it comes to the federal headship of the male of our species, Adam, it is a confessional issue today. There's no question in my mind. And churches cannot be divided over whether or not Adam was our federal head or it was Adam and Eve. Are you with me? Right. Mm -hmm. And they can't be divided over 
the value of human life, of the feeble, of the unborn, of the newborn defective, and of the elderly, and they can't be divided over the issue of the uh, the the, deg- the degraded passions of sexual perversions of all sorts. Those are confessional issues, and we know they're confessional because that's where our culture wants our blood. And so where the culture wants the blood, where there's a gap in the wall, you have to stand there. That's right. Re- really appreciate that, Tim. Um, really appreciate your time. Uh, bef- before I let you go, uh, for, th- for those listeners who would want to... Uh, want to learn more about these subjects where would you turn them um so on on the issue of authority and uh, the authority of of the father and the husband in the home on authority of uh or the uh, the i get well you said you said something there that i liked about the uh the root of authority being rooted in in the trinity um I guess maybe a better question is where, where, aside from, from your own experience and discipling, where have, uh, where have you learned these things? Well, the first thing is I've looked at my own black heart. Mm -hmm. Every time I read the Bible, I look at what I don't like that it says, and then I study that place, and then I preach that place. Mm. And so I really do think that it doesn't take much reading to learn our hatred of rebellion we just have to look at how much we resent the speed limit sure and then resent getting pulled over and then resent having anybody correct us Mm. now having said that uh, maybe people would think that's a cheap shot let me say this i have not found anywhere to be as helpful on the issue of authority and submission as the gospel of john Mm. if you read the gospel of john examining the relationship of the son and the father. I mean, it's, it's drop-dead gorgeous. And so that's one place. Another place that um, I would say I have uh, very much learned on sexuality far and away, well, <laughs> unfortunately, both my recommendations are Roman Catholic. Are you ready for that? We can, we can handle it. Yeah. Okay. One of them is Stephen D. Clark. Nothing better, nothing has been written in the last 50 years. Man and Woman in Christ. Uh, We're working on coming out with another edition of it. He's Roman Catholic up in Ann Arbor. He's a dear Christian brother. Um, Vern Poitras, many people would say it's the best thing that's been written on it. Uh, It's it's encyclopedic. Uh, Man and Woman in Christ might be able to find a used copy online. Um, there's a dirty copy that my son scanned when he was in junior high school that's up somewhere. It might be on CBMW's website. Huh. Um, but, but we hope to be able to come out with an edition of that. There's just nothing close to it that's been written, okay? Oh, fantastic. Uh, another, uh, another thing I would recommend, and probably I've recommended him more often than anybody else as a writer, and that's G.K. Chesterton, uh, read his book, The Thing. It's called The Thing, T-H-I-N-G. Read his book, What's Wrong with the World. Ignatius has come out with a number of... And don't read everything Chesterton writes. He hates Calvinism. Hates oh, yeah. It. Yeah, yeah. But when you read what he has to say about it, it's a joke, you know? I don't normally laugh at the stupidity of G.K. Chesterton, but he doesn't have any clue what Calvinism is. Mm-hmm. Um, but his writing on 
domesticity, fatherhood, motherhood, children, authority on the women's issue from a century ago, a little over a century ago, is nothing close to it. Uh, when I have wanted to minister to my daughter who is overwhelmed with being a young mother and she's been over for dinner, I, we lie down on the carpet after dinner, mm-hmm. after Sunday dinner, and then I just read it out loud to her. And it's just that good, Chesterton is, on uh, on on the glory of motherhood. There's nobody close. Another thing I would say on authority is read everything you can read by Ian Murray. Read. Okay, good. Um, yeah. And Ian Murray, uh, his, his, his biography of Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, but especially I'd recommend Lloyd-Jones is another hero of mine, and he has a little book called Authority. Very short little book. Excellent little book on authority. And that's what it's called, authority. The Banner of Truth puts it out. Um, so those are some of the things. G.K. Chesterton, uh, Stephen B. Clark, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. Um, another book I'd recommend, and this will sort of shock people, um, <laughs> but I would recommend Paul Jewett's Man is Male and Female. Okay? Okay. And I would and I would also recommend Henrik Ibsen, the playwright, his little play called A Doll's House. Really? Yeah. And the reason I recommend those two books is that they're such simple, short, perfect illustrations of the enemy and his tactics. And if you're going to fight something, you need to know the enemy. Mm-hmm. And that little play, A Doll's House, does such a perfect job of showing how it is that in the Western world we've come to despise motherhood. And so it's an evil play, and but it's very helpful, very good. I'd, I'd encourage people wanting to stand against the corruption of motherhood and sexuality in the church to just have a reader's theater some evening and have people take different parts in a doll's house and just read it. And then man is male and female. Paul Jewett was a professor out at Fuller Seminary. Um, And he wrote what I think is the best short summary of of what we have today as evangelical feminism. Okay? And we have a lot of people who are very, very soft on feminism, who are called complementarians. Um, I used to be the executive director of Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood with Wayne Grudem there. And so I know this world. And the thing that's good about Jewett is he argues for feminism, but he argues honestly in a way that a lot of crypto-feminists in the evangelical world won't be honest. And that is, Paul Jewett says, the Apostle Paul said it, the Apostle Paul is wrong. Mm -hmm. Okay? Mm -hmm. And so get your feminism straight from somebody who will be straight up with you about it. The Apostle Paul is wrong. And that little book, Man is Male and Female, don't get it mixed up with Stephen B. Clark's Man and Woman in Christ. All right? Mm -hmm. Close titles, but they're different. That little book, I think, is just excellent for showing the the breathtaking revolutionary nature of feminism but remember he's in favor of it so you'll get your you'll get it straight from the horse's mouth and i think it will steal people's nerve 
for the battle that is in front of us and what it's going to take for us to see God vindicated in this battle. That's always the goal, isn't it? To, uh, to see God vindicated. Yes, especially the fatherhood of God. Amen. Well, Tim Bailey, thanks very much for being with us. It's been a pleasure. Well, I'm glad that I've gotten a chance to meet you, even though I, you can't see my ugly face, but <laughs> at least we know each other's voices now, and I hope I've been able to serve you in some way, and I hope you'll say hi to Joe for me. No, I absolutely will. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast for Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please take a moment to like, share, and rate the podcast on social media and your favorite listening platform. For more resources, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca.